This episode of Reality Escape Pod is brought to you by Morty, the World Escape Room Championship, Buzzshot, and Patreon supporters like you. Buzzshot is customer satisfaction software for your escape room business. They offer an assortment of pre and post game features, including robust waiver management, branded team photos, and streamlined review management for Yelp, TripAdvisor, Google Reviews, Morty, and more. David Staffel of Bewilderbox Escape Rooms in England has this to say about Buzzshot. We've always done pretty well for reviews at Bewilderbox, but the amount we were receiving almost doubled when we started using Buzzshot. If you're looking to increase post-game engagement, it's a no-brainer. Not only that, but Tom and the team provide the best customer service you could ask for. Streamline your marketing and grow your business at buzzshot.com slash repod. That's R-E-P-O-D. When booking your free trial to get 20% off your first three months. Details in the show notes. Welcome to the Reality Escape Pod, your lifeline when you need a getaway from the real world. I'm David Spira, alongside my co-host, PG Law. Together, we're exploring immersive gaming from all angles, and we'll be joined by guests who really know their stuff. Each episode this season, we will be interviewing escape room creators from different countries. Today's guests are from Montreal, Quebec, Canada. We're joined by Jonathan Driscoll and Sasha St. Denis the owners of Escapearium. They have produced and run countless games across many locations, with their latest work being some of the most epic and ambitious escape rooms found in North America. Welcome, Jonathan and Sasha. Thank you. Super excited to be here. Quite the introduction there. Yeah, thank you for such a nice welcome. Very deserved. I'm so excited to have you guys on because I came to play your rooms last summer during one of the Room Escape Artist tours, and I was blown away by the size and scope of your games. Oh, thanks. It was such a great experience to to have everybody there from the tour. Yeah, we absolutely loved running that tour. It was a huge hit. And Jonathan and Sasha know we're already talking about when we're going to run a tour there next. And I think the answer is probably next year. Yeah, that would be super exciting. We really loved having you guys there. And it was really cool to see all the enthusiasts that come from afar that were able to play some of our stuff. Escapearium has been around for a while You have many locations and a ton of games spanning years of development, but you have become well-known for your most recent games, The Lost Island of the Voodoo Queen, Rain Corp, and Wardrobe for Sale especially come to mind. I think the defining characteristics of all three of these games is massive ambition. Can you tell us about what you're striving for with these latest creations? We have a really creative team behind us. It's very passionate. And I think that we strive to just make every game better and better. Disney would be most probably our biggest influence. We're striving each time to bypass what we did before. Each game, we wanted to take it a little further, make it a little more immersive and make the experience for our guests that much better. Uh, The thing is, when we started, the market was obviously a a lot younger. I think it was seven years ago and some months. And back then, there wasn't very much investment or, I guess, development in the escape room industry. 
So for sure, our first big step was definitely when we opened our second location, where we determined by then that we think that games could last five to 10 years. So a lot of it goes with how long do you think a game could last? And we decided pretty early before we had much to compare with that we thought that the lifespan of a game could last five to 10 years. So we started investing in staff and in people and in the games themselves according to how long we thought they could last. And then after doing those games, we thought they could last longer. So we went from five to 10 years to I think they could last maybe more than 10 years. So that was a big reason why we thought we could push games as far as we do now. So basically, when you think that you're building a game that's going to last a year or two, you need to get a return on investment very quickly. And so you have to put less money into it. And when you are looking at a much longer horizon, and then you can put a lot more money into it, knowing you'll make less money up front, but more over the long haul. Right, exactly. The first location that we opened, we had very little information on the industry. And we would have been very happy if the games lasted two years. But after seeing the reservations after a single year, we very quickly determined that was very far from the case and that we thought that it could go a lot longer than that. I'm a person that looks at the math of a lot of stuff. I love studying the finances and mathematics behind things. And that gave us a good reason to invest more and push things a lot further and go towards the dreams that we had determined since the beginning when we created the first escape rooms. We definitely had a dream. We didn't think that we could get to the point that we're at now, but we were getting closer and closer to that reality. When David described your games as massively ambitious, I feel like that is a wild understatement, actually, because just those three games that he mentioned, Voodoo Queen, Rain Corp, and Wardrobe for Sale, they are enormous. These would be flagship games at any other single location. And you guys have all three of these games at one location. I mean, it is astounding. To me, that seems like one of your defining characteristics is just having these games that have a massive scale and scope. Well, yes, but we had a lot of influence from other sources. One of the major influences was when we went to St. Louis and this was before we rented this current location. And we saw somebody that was selling a big boat. And we saw the boat and we're like, we need to put that in a game. I'm going to step in there. I said, I want that boat. And John just said, <laughs> we're not buying that boat. And I said, I want that boat. And he's like, well, that's insane. And then I convinced him that we wanted the boat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a little bit more how it worked, I guess. Well, I definitely wanted the boat. But yeah, she was definitely pushing for it. But we had nowhere to put it anyway. You needed some sort of big warehouse to have that sort of thing. And you need to have a big garage door. All that was like, yes, I want the boat too, but it's impossible. Yeah, we didn't have any of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what happened is that then we finally found a place and we're like, wow, it's a very ambitious place, but we think we could pull it off. So we thought that the market could handle a place as big as we wanted to rent, which also had a big garage door. Then we started looking at actually buying that boat that we looked at. So we brought it in and then we went to play New Orleans, 13th Gate. I don't want to spoil anything, but that kind of changed our view on what our game was going to be. So our <laughs> game was supposed to be just in a boat. And then we played that game and then we said, no, it's got to be much bigger than that. 
13th had a really big influence on what we were aiming at for that location. There's a whole bunch of things that you both have touched upon that I want to cover. Let's start with the boat. How does one buy a giant ship? It's not really a boat. It's a ship. I want to take a minute to establish the scale of this thing, which we have done once already because Jonathan was kind enough to come on for one of our Spoilers Club episodes where we covered Lost Island of the Voodoo Queen. I think it's 80 feet long or so, if I'm not mistaken. So how does one get a ship like this that doesn't actually float? Like you couldn't sail it. How do you get that there? You drive it. Tractor trailer. Yeah, all the way from Florida. So what happened is that somebody else actually bought that boat and we were sad. But that place that bought the boat was a haunt and they went out of business. So they had a boat for sale. (laughs) We drove the boat all the way from Florida all the way to Montreal. I don't know how many miles that is, but that's a lot of miles. (laughs) What does a border guard say to you (laughs) when you are driving up with a giant boat? I'd love to be able to answer that question, but I was not in the car that was pulling the boat. But yeah, that must have been quite the uh, chat. He probably told all of his friends to come see what was going on there. Because I doubt that a pirate boat crosses the border pretty often. Did it come up in one entire piece or in separate pieces? Mostly in one. I mean, the main part was definitely one piece. And then after that, you had the jib and the main sail that was put into the boat. And after that, the boat was pulled and that's it. I have pictures of it, and it did not seem very solid. I don't think there were a lot of potholes on the way there. I also think we would have lost a few pieces. Well, we're going to get those pictures for the show notes. It was very awesome as it was pulling up to Escape Barium. We were very excited. (laughs) Actually, I don't even think I was there when we were pulled up. I think you were alone watching it because I don't remember seeing the boat. Because the boat did hit our building. Yep, there's a big dent. There was like aluminum siding. And the boat ran right into it and ripped it all off. (laughs) Ramming speed. Yeah, I don't know how that happened, but it's very tight turn to be able to bring in a boat of that size into the garage. I guess the guy missed his mark and hit the side of the building, but the boat was intact. That's all I cared about. (laughs) So you guys got this facility before you got the boat or did you buy this facility for the boat? Sounds like both. (laughs) The the boat definitely had an influence for buying that. It's like the size of an airplane hangar. Well, it's 35,000 square feet, the warehouse itself, but it was just empty. We're taking a moment to thank our sponsor, Morty. Morty is a free app for discovering, planning, tracking, and reviewing escape rooms and other immersive social outings. I believe in Morty so much that I have a stake in it as an advisor. We are not the only ones who have gone global. In preparation for this episode, Morty's team has added a ton of escape rooms and companies in Canada. There are over 210 companies in 307 locations with over 1,152 games available in Canada on Morty. Not everyone knows this, but in my opinion, some of the locations in Canada are among the premier escape room destinations in North America. Places like Montreal have incredible games and Lisa and I are going to Quebec City this week. So we'll be reporting back on all of that. 
Plus, we have extensive coverage of Toronto and Niagara Falls, and there's a lot more of Canada to discover. So Morty's coverage of this is so valuable for us as we look around and try to figure out where we're going to go to next. Morty's a great place to go to plan your own trips to Canada and check out their escape room scene. You can learn more at mortyapp.com slash repod. That's R-E-P-O-D to sign up and get a special badge for our listeners. Link and details in the show notes. We got to see the whole team work so hard when we were running the Montreal tour. Really impressive crew. But you also brought on the crew from Codex, which was an escape room company in Montreal that Lisa and I were huge fans of, and they joined into the Escapearium team and continued to make games that we're huge fans of. Talk a little bit about how you have brought together this team, because it, it seems like an impressive crew. Yeah, we're definitely really lucky for our team. I think at every occasion I can, I will tell people how important they are and how much hard work and passion they have for what they do. When we did Wardrobe, our team was fairly different than when we did the other games because that was during COVID and our team did get bigger. And like you said, Kevin and Miriam came on board and the passion they had for that game was just incredible. Like I did not ask them, can you stay longer to make sure this is done? Everybody was there as long as needed to be to get things working for the tour. Even if they had nothing to do, they were still staying there just to support those that had something to do to like sometimes five in the morning and back at it at seven in the morning. It was just, it was a really good team bonding experience. And seeing the passion that all these people have for the industry is just, we're just so lucky to have such a great and talented team. It was really impressive. We'll talk more about that effort in the bonus episode. That's its own crazy (laughs) story. The one thing I will say is that I definitely noticed the passion and enthusiasm of all of your designers, your game masters. And I get a sense that they get it from you guys because I can tell that you're really passionate and enthusiastic about your company and the games that you create as well. We're definitely super passionate about it. And even our GMs, they're almost actors at this point because we did change a lot of stuff actually since you've been even on older games that gives a lot of acting to our team. And the thing about acting is that they feel that they're a lot more involved in the experience of the players. And I found that that made such a big difference. Instead of staying there, I guess, more passive, watching the teams and just throwing in something if they're a little bit behind or they need some help, as opposed to being an active character within the story, it was night and day in terms of the passion that our team has as far as the GMs go. It makes sense because it changes their role from one of an overseer to having a relationship that is dynamic and that has to fuel some passion. Yeah. And like, how often do you GM a game and get people to applaud for you after a game? Just every time that I, again, I don't want to really spoil things, but there's certain games where I know that the game's going to end and I just go in the back and kind of sneak in without anybody seeing me and see the reaction when the people come out and to hear the people applaud for my team when they're done, it gives me tingles. And I'm not even there, but I could just feel it for them. And they love that and they feed off of that. And then after that, they're going to give an even better experience because of that. And it it drives them to be passionate and to give a really good experience to the players. 
my personal experience when I play escape rooms is I don't like when there's an actor that's there the whole time looking at you. But if there's a character there that's in and out and that has a certain reason to be there, that I really enjoy. So we kind of base ourselves on our own experience. I don't know if it's the best way to do it, but to our experience, that was the best way to do it. Yeah, as long as the actor has a purpose to be there. They're not just there to be an actor in the room. That makes a lot of sense. I thought it was an interesting point that you guys made about how your GMs and your employees get more invested in the player experience when they are more involved, which I don't know that we've ever had that point brought up. But a lot of times we are searching for what is the secret behind getting the GMs more enthusiastic and passionate about the games? Because to me, that is probably at least 25 percent of what makes a game fun is feeling like the game masters are rooting for us and that they're there to make sure we have a good time because nothing ruins an experience for me more than a game master who is completely turned off. So I, I think you guys have done a really great job in that area. And I would actually bring that uh, bring that a little further for all the owners out there. And uh, this is something I've told to other owners as well that I talk to is that not only are they more involved, their turnover rate is very little. During a time where People are just scrambling to get employees. Everybody stays. Even if they finish their degree in university, because a lot of them are students, and they start a full-time job, a lot of them still try to come on weekends because they still want to have that one day or that one shift where they do still work. I would say that it's not only better for the experience, but also better for a turnover rate. I mean, that's the best move that we've ever done. Recon Boston will have already happened at this point, but I can tell you that this is a key point that Lisa and I are speaking about exactly what you're talking about here. Employee retention. Yeah. And giving employees a chance to feel like they're more than a cog in the machine to develop mastery, to develop a sense of ownership over their skills and the thing that they're doing really does help motivate people. But I want to shift gears. Jonathan, you were a big stakes poker player for many years. How did you get into this? It's a game that I really enjoyed. Same thing with escape rooms, right? It's something that you start with, you're passionate about, and you start playing, and then... All of a sudden, beats your life? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know anything about that. I got lucky uh, quite a, a few times, and I hit big, and then I just continued playing. And I met a lot of good friends through poker, and we would do a tournaments outside of Montreal, mainly in Las Vegas for the World Series of Poker. So it was a really cool part of my life. At the beginning, it was a lot more fun than it was at the end. And at the end, there were a lot of people that shouldn't have been playing because they were playing too much that they couldn't afford. And it's just not fun seeing that. So that's why I am completely got out of that after. That makes a lot of sense. You have one of the most impressive risk tolerances that I've seen in an escape room creator. With your business and your games, it feels like you bet big and it feels like you are frequently going all in. Is that fair to say that this mentality is coming from the gambling background or are there other things in the works here? Yes, somewhat. I'm somebody that, okay, let me show you another example. If I didn't have to insure my car, I wouldn't. <laughs> Why? Because I know that the company who's insuring my car is paying somebody, is paying for the offices, is paying for advertising, is making money on top of that. All that money that I'm giving them, it's not something that's beneficial to me in the long term. Yes, it's a risk not to take insurance, but I know it's a big loss of money to take insurance. 
So I'm somebody that loves calculating that kind of stuff. And that's what it was for escape rooms as well. I mean, it was a mix of my passion to want to get somewhere and my calculations to say, hey, I think we could get somewhere. That's pretty much how it came about. It's calculated risk. Exactly. That's what it comes down to. And Sasha, I'm curious where your risk tolerance was and if you're similar, but the boat story feels like it's already answered that question. (laughs) (laughs) Found the right partner. (laughs) I don't think I'm as big of a risk taker as him, but I aim high and normally uh, Jonathan keeps me on the street to say, well, no, that's impossible. We can't do that in a game. I'm the kind where let's build a rocket ship that flies out of the game. And he's like, no, that's impossible. It sounds like you have a lot of wild ambitions and he's running the calculations in the background, risk tolerances and all those things. And yes, this is possible, but to this degree, that sounds like a really good partnership to me. Yeah, it also comes down to the technical part as well. So she wants something. So, oh, that, oh my God, it's a great idea. But I don't think that's even possible, <laughs> that kind of thing. But she does really, no, she definitely has really big ideas. And uh, we definitely go really well together for that. Because, I mean, to be in a relationship and to work together every day for every hour, you have to have a good relationship to be able to do that. That's something that I was really curious about in speaking with you. Because Lisa and I very much live a similar <laughs> lifestyle where we're living a life together and running a business together. And um, yeah, I tend to be the dreamer and Lisa tends to be the one who sits down and does the math and figures out how this is actually going to come together. And uh, it kind of keeps all of this from floating off into the stratosphere and popping. <laughs> yeah, definitely. We can't both have the same personality or it would never work. Someone has to have certain skills and certain things that they want or are capable of doing. Because if we were both the risk taker and both the dreamer, we probably wouldn't be doing too well right now. Yeah, yeah. I've seen both of you at a lot of conferences and events. It feels like if there's something going on, you're usually game to show up for it. You're travelers and you're learners. And it's evident in the progression of the things you've made. What's the approach here? Is there a method behind that madness or is it just take the opportunities to travel and learn? I personally feel that if you go somewhere and you learn just one thing, normally it pays off whatever your investment was to go somewhere. So that's always been our motto is that to go somewhere and just learn one important thing or one thing that we could take back from that. Um, Especially with the size of our operation, I feel that just anything that we could bring back could really change a lot in the long term. So we're definitely out there improving our mentality in terms of Escapearium in general. And all of our team has always been, be proud of what you've done, but try to do better. I think that what you've just described really shines through in everything you're doing. Because really this whole conversation as a company, as a unit, you come across to me as like, there's this duality going on. You're very thoughtful and also really impulsive. And also there's this, and I don't mean this to come across the wrong way because I also feel this about myself, but there's this arrogance, but then there's also a lot of humility that you both have. And it was surprising to me the more I got to know both of you to see these different sides because 
everything you're doing is just so big and it feels so risky. But then you also realize that there's a lot of thought and there is this very open and willing mentality to just say, oh, yeah, that didn't work at all. Even though we put a ton into it, we're going to make a whole bunch of really big changes. And you do that with such a fluidity that I don't really see. And I especially don't see from people and companies that are operating at the size and scale that you're operating at. It's hard to steer a ship this size in a new direction. I think what you said is pretty much straight on. I mean, I don't take that personally. I 100% agree with you. And I've always been the type to say, look, if you worked hard at something, I think you should show it off. But at the same time, you should be able to recognize what's better out there, how you could be better. And I think that's the mentality that we have that everyone has in our team. And that's why it works because we all do that. And yes, sometimes we got to scrap stuff, even games like that we've done, like Rain Corp's a good example it's changed a lot since the last time. And we've put a lot of time and money in certain things and be like, nope, that's not going to work. Scrap it. And, and it hurts. It hurts to do that. But in the long run, it's I think it's the right thing to do. But I think just being open to learning from others and learning from your own mistakes is a very important thing in this industry and just in life in general. I've learned a lot. I've made a lot of mistakes in my life, really big mistakes. And I'm lucky because a lot of those mistakes I did when I was younger, I'm not saying I don't do any now, but I made a lot of big mistakes when I was younger in business and stuff like that. And I've learned a lot from those mistakes. It's definitely an important factor in the business that we have currently. I'm constantly impressed by the way that you operate. Thank you. appreciate it. Being able to take feedback is, I think, really important for any designer. And David probably knows more than most because... I know several times where he's gotten very angry emails from creators when he has probably written a review about an escape room that they perhaps did not agree with his take on. (laughs) And instead of taking it as an opportunity to learn and improve maybe and look outside of yourself and your own vision, you know, they get very defensive. And so I find it impressive when people are able to take feedback in a meaningful way. We also have quite a big team that helps build the concept, the creative side and everything. So we're always talking amongst each other, changing things, giving feedback. So it's not like it's a one-person show either. We're already used to having all the feedback, the comments, changing stuff up to make it better. And when your clients come back and start telling you feedback, it's definitely important to be listening to it because one, they're the client. And two, if people start telling you multiple times, oh, I think this could have been better. And it keeps coming back and it's very similar. There's something there that you have to change. So yeah, it's easy to say, oh yeah, people said that, but we take it to heart and we want to make the best game possible. So we'll go back and make those changes. Yeah, that makes sense. I was talking to one escape room owner and he told me that the number one way to get your employees to care about the game is to ask them for their feedback and then to actively apply it, to listen to their feedback and to apply because they know they're running the games every day. Yeah, that's one thing that applies to us and it applies to our employees. Sometimes you do get feedback and sometimes it does hurt. If you've done so many hours and put a lot of money into something and somebody says, eh, I didn't like it or I didn't like that part, it does hurt even if you do take the feedback. But if you're able to take a bit of time and think about it, it's just going to make things better in the long term. But then again, if it's something that you only hear once and then you ask people about it, it's also possible that the person's opinion is not something that's shared amongst a lot of people. So as long as you respect and 
take comments from others. And then after that, you act or you try to assess those comments and see if it's something that applies to a lot of people, or is it just that one person? I think that's a really important part. And I think we do that quite a bit because we do that with our employees ourselves. And every time we do have a meeting, we always tell them, we want to hear everything you have to say, but don't be mad if we don't go with your ideas. Because when we do just one little part of a game, it always starts with, not always with a bad idea, but it's almost like a bad idea made a little bit better, made a little bit better, made a little bit better. made it, And it, it's just back and forth where the initial idea was not great at all, but then it just got better and better. But your ideas are just giving new ideas to the other people that are listening. I think, especially this new game that we're working on now, I've never seen an example more than this, where it was just one idea thrown to somebody, to thrown to somebody else, and it was just get better, better, better. And the game has totally changed from our original concept. That's interesting. On the flip side, we know that you've purchased some games to get a large facility up and running, which I think is a really smart move. But what do you think are your top positive lessons and your top negative lessons from buying escape rooms? One lesson I learned that was on my New Mexico tour is how to buy an in-desk room game and make it good. <laughs> Talking about Bust Out, they bought the Jumanji game from Indus Room and really transformed it in some meaningful ways. That's in uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico, which Jonathan yeah. and Sasha came on that tour. Yeah, so I definitely wanted to give a shout out to them because they did a really good job. That's how you should be doing it when you buy a game, especially from in-desk room. I don't have any problem with people buying the games, but if you're going to buy it, I think you should maybe put your own twist on it or try to maybe change things around or at least analyze what the game is. That's what we did. And I don't regret buying the games. We've changed them quite a bit, especially Blind Tiger has changed quite a bit, especially now we added acting and everything. So I think even if you've done that game, you could come play this one. And yeah, you might know it's the same one, but we put our twist on it. But we almost had no choice when we were opening this location. I mean, the rent is so high. That was part of the sacrifices we needed to make. I know that it's frowned upon, and I know that when I go to places, I put that game on a lesser level right away when I know it's bought. I'm not sure why, but I just do that, <laughs> and I know that a lot of people do, but it's not something that I wouldn't do again or wouldn't recommend, but I would definitely recommend to put your own twist on it and see how you can make it better. I think that it is a very smart move to make, especially in the situation that you were in where you had this giant amount of space and you needed to get enough product in there to turn the space into a functional business that made sense to hire enough staff to run and that you could get enough customers going through it that you could support filling out the rest of the space. I think buying a game under those circumstances or buying a game if you're using it as a launch pad because you don't have the skills or the time to go and produce all of the props and all of the stuff you need to produce, I think it's a very good move. But I think, yeah, you just have to do it knowingly and not think that you're buying a completely finished product. You have to make it your own. Right. And a lot of times you don't even have to know any programming or technicalities about it. A lot of it is you could just change the face of it or the way that it's done or the way that's presented and just put your own twist on it. I don't think it takes that much work. It definitely takes time to think about this stuff, but I don't think you definitely need a million skills to be able to just put your own twist on a certain game. Sometimes it's just adding a little extra clue so that this puzzle that isn't working all that well does work well. Right. But can I turn this around and ask you, what do you think about when you go into an escape room and you know it's been bought, do you already put it at a lower level? Do you not care? Are you looking for changes? For me, it depends on 
who the creator is. There are some people who produce games where I'm excited when I hear that they were involved in a game. If someone told me that they bought an Escapearium game, I'd be like, oh, yeah, sign me up. I'm going to play that. I think that some of the larger providers that are really spotty in what they do, and then it's really just a question of how good a job the buyer did with the product. Like nerd games, as a general example, my assumption is I'm going to see the most standard of escape rooms on the planet. And maybe they've figured out how to put a twist on it that will be exciting. But I don't immediately discount it. And Lisa has to press companies really hard to make sure that we actually know where these things are coming from. And she does that beforehand. We've never accidentally replayed a game. And that is entirely because of Lisa and the research that she does. But like a lot of times, and this is the thing that bothers me, is when the staff doesn't know that the games were bought. That's when it just starts to feel disingenuous. It feels like a lie. And I've walked out of games that like I knew a particular builder made it. I know how much the prop costs. And I said to a game master once like, oh, yeah, I really liked what you did with that prop. It was a really cool way to use a, a purchased prop. And they were like, oh, no, everything here has been built by the owners. David, do you feel like escape room companies have a duty to disclose whether a game has been purchased or not? I feel that if you are not proud of who you bought it from, you shouldn't buy it. That's my feeling, is that you should put it on your website. If you're proud of it, cool. Most of your customers won't even notice it's there. But the ones who are avid players who are going to be pissed off if they step into a game and they look around and they're like... I think I've played all of this. And then they go and they solve a couple of puzzles without looking at anything. And they're like, I've definitely played this game before. That's an unnecessary feel bad. But yeah, to me, it's part of credits. It's part of credits and crediting. And I think that as an industry, we should just have more of that. And part of that is transparency about where the games came from. It's a hard thing to judge because Jonathan says and they buy games and then they change it. It's also like, how much have they changed the game? And to what percentage does it now feel unique enough that you maybe don't feel like you need to disclose that. It's a whole conversation. What I would do in that case is I would say this game was purchased from this company and then heavily modified into a new experience by our team. That's probably how I would frame it up. You think that should just go on the website or... I think it should go on the website and I think staff should be trained that if someone calls up and asks what the story is, that's the story they give. And then let the customers make a decision about what they want from it. But I do think that it's crediting. If you're making a movie and you hire out for visual effects, you cite the people who did the visual effects. If you hire out for scenic, you cite the people who built the set. To me, that's all just part of it. And it's part of what I would love to see in terms of professionalizing in escape rooms. I think credits are a huge part of it. It may also help with situations where like, do you remember, and I've told this story in a bonus episode, but my friend Gabby from Survivor was looking to play an escape room in Toronto, I think. And she was like, I'll ask PG because she's my expert friend in escape rooms. And I saw that there was a room called Blind Tiger in Toronto. Oh, and I knew that that game was like a purchased game. So I was like, oh, I've played that one at Escapearium and I loved it. I thought it was a very fun game. So I was like, this must be the same game. You should go there. And, and then weeks went by and I never heard from her. And I finally hit her up and I was like, hey, Gabby, what did you think of that game? How was it? And she was like, I didn't want to say anything, but she was like, it was 
awful <laughs> and she hated it. And it was a completely different game. And I had no idea. And I felt so bad. This was like for her birthday. And I sent her to like a terrible room because it was different. And, and I guess it's on me. And I did not realize how many different escape rooms that are speakeasy themed. They're all named Blind Tiger. That was apparently a very popular name for speakeasy style escape rooms. Yeah, that sucks. And there's a few places I've been as well. One time I actually spoke to the owner directly. And I said, oh, they look very similar to these games. Is it the same creator or did you buy them? No, 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 I didn't buy them. We made it ourselves. Okay. And then after that, well, it was the same game. <laughs> I go in there. So I'm not sure how that happened directly with the owner. So yeah, that kind of sucks. I know that we don't actually mention it on our site, though. Maybe we should. Everybody's aware of it, though. Like everybody, all of our staff, every all the enthusiasts know that they are bought. But it's maybe something we should put up. It doesn't necessarily bother me, but I do think that it helps for enthusiasts who maybe don't want to go into a game thinking they've played it a second time or they've played it once before. Yeah, I don't think that's ever happened yet. But yeah, it's something we should maybe do. Like you said, you still have some credit for, even though we changed it a lot, it's still some of it is still there and we should still credit them. Taking a moment to thank our sponsor, the World Escape Room Championship, a global competition for escape room players. This year, it is happening virtually, so everyone can compete for free. The elimination round is happening on the 5th of November, and the top 100 teams will go on to compete in the grand finale on the 26th of November. This year's winners each receive a Nintendo Switch Lite. We're just a few days away from ER Champ, so if you are planning to compete, there's a few things that you should make sure you have done in advance. First is sign up your team. Every single person on your team needs an account on erchamp.com. And you can only play on a computer or a laptop. This will not be possible on a tablet or a mobile phone. Once you have your team, if I were you, I would go and do an online escape room or two. Get yourselves warmed up. And they do have their virtual rooms from last year's championship available online to play for free on their website. And then day of, show up well-rested, ready to compete, have paper, pencil, whatever tools you need. So in both the elimination and the final stage, you will have up to five hours to play this room. However, we have been told that the top teams usually finish in about one to two hours. And also we have heard they have some pretty intense safeguards against cheating. So just don't do it. Be wise, compete fairly, play to win, and have fun. Good luck out there. Gather your team of two to four competitors. You must each create your own accounts on the ER Champ website. Whether you're in it for fun or you're in it to win it, I wish you luck. You can learn more at erchamp.com. Details in the show notes. So during spooky season, we know that you run a haunt out of your flagship escape room location in Laval. See if I'm going to say this correctly. Nuit du Terror, the Night of Terror. <laughs> Can you go into the haunt a little bit? How does it work? Is it in a separate location? Do you build it into your existing escape rooms? What we determined was why not build a haunt and build escape rooms within the haunt? That was kind of our plan. So to have our haunt, 
And then to build our entire haunt first, and after that, build escape rooms within that haunt. So at the same time, we're upgrading the haunt and we're able to double dip. These haunts, are you only running them during haunt season or are they available to play anytime? So they're available for five weekends. So only Friday, Saturday, and then at the end, closer to Halloween, it's open on Halloween and Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. So basically we run our escape rooms up to five o'clock. This is the plan, by the way. We haven't seen it work yet. So we're supposed to run the games, the escape rooms until five o'clock, then open the haunt at seven. So make the changes necessary to have a path so that people can walk through. So it's a walkthrough haunt. And yeah, have it all ready for seven o'clock when the people will come to, to do the haunt. So it is like a normal haunt that you've seen everywhere. I think our sets are pretty awesome. We're not that big fans of haunts in general, especially Sasha. She's very, she's uh, really scared of everything. So it's kind of funny that we got into this, but I thought it just made sense. And we had a lot of room that we wanted to fill to start paying some bills. And uh, yeah, it just made sense. But that was our first year. And then now it's three years later due to uh, COVID, but we've made a lot of changes. So it's going to be a completely different experience to what it was before. Before it was more of a, you walk through and there's some animatronics, a few actors, quite a bit of actors, but they would not really be trained. There wasn't much of a storyline. There wasn't that much immersion. And now we've totally turned it around. We're concentrating a lot on the actors, a lot on the mask costumes. We're putting a lot more time and money into the actors themselves. So this is a new build out. It doesn't take place in any of your current escape rooms. No, it's exactly. We do have three escape rooms, those three games that are within the hunt. I'm trying to wrap my head around this. It sounds to me like you have multiple escape rooms and you are chaining them together. So you move from one game to the other and then you have like transition points in between where you are morphing your hallways into part of the experience. But you basically have created a walkthrough experience where people move from game to game and encounter actors and animatronics and scares and story along the way. Yeah, exactly. You go through three games. I would say the games are about 25% maybe. 25 to 30% of the haunt are escape rooms or part of our escape rooms. You don't see everything of the escape rooms. You might not see it in the right order, but it is about 25% of the haunt are our escape rooms. Oh, so you've repurposed existing escape rooms right. into the haunt and then built the haunt around that. What well, was the opposite? But yes, we did. We built the <laughs> haunt first and then built the escape rooms from what we had in the haunt. Oh, the escape rooms are like immersed into the haunt experience. You don't necessarily flow from one to the other because there's other sets within the haunt. But right now, two of the escape rooms and the newest one that will be opening, hopefully mid-September, are within the haunt. But there's other sets that not currently escape rooms. Hopefully they will be eventually. I'm fascinated by that. You, do you guys have a horror themed escape room? Not yet. <laughs> the next one is a horror-based escape room, and I'm really excited about it. Initially, I wasn't very excited about it, but after doing Wardrobe, we're like, there's no way we're going to be able to top that game. And then now this one's coming out, we're like, okay, it might be close. I mean, I don't know what's going to be the result, but we're super excited about it. So not having had experience running a haunt before this, did you have to hire somebody specifically to train the actors, things like that? That's a very long story. <laughs> <laughs> we'll save that for the bonus episode. Oh, it's too long for your bonus episode. 
I think it's actually a good bonus episode thing because it's, yeah, it's quite the story, actually. In a nutshell, yeah, we definitely had help from the outside because we didn't know what we were doing. But we still learned a lot from it. And I think this year we're going to do a lot better. We got feedback from people. But I think the result was still really good. And in Montreal, there's not that much you could do. It's not like I know some states have like haunts. Every two miles, you have another haunt. And here, it's really not like that. So there's a lot of people. Like yesterday was actually our announcement that we were opening. And this blog announced it on Facebook and it just blew up. Like we have 2,500 comments on that Facebook post, which is a lot. At least wow, we think it's a lot. Wow, that's a lot of engagement. That's yeah, awesome. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of engagement. It's still going. It's yesterday. So it'll probably reach like three, 4,000 comments. Oh, you got a few fans. No, that'll be super fun. I'm spoiled because here in Los Angeles, there's so many haunts that I am busy like every single weekend in October, you know, going to all kinds of different events. But I'm glad you're bringing some of that spirit to Montreal. Yeah, we're really excited because this time is going to be very different. So I'm very excited to see what people are going to think of it because we're putting a lot of time in the actors and the stories and people are not going to be moving the entire time as opposed to last time you went at your own pace. Now we're stopping the teams in certain places and making sure they see the scene because we're controlling everything so that you don't run into another team. So we're curious how that's going to go in terms of coordination for our staff, but also in terms of players or I guess clients, how are they going to feel about having to stop and then seeing a scene? I got to come up and try that. So I know that your flagship location in Laval has a tabletop gaming bar and a restaurant. And I definitely want to hear about your experience expanding into food and beverage. So definitely, if anyone ever asked me prior in my life, if I'd ever owned a restaurant, I would have said, I'll know. And somehow we now own restaurants. I would say the biggest challenges are opening a restaurant and having no experience, no knowledge whatsoever in that industry. So that was really challenging. Our space was really challenging because within the warehouse, it wasn't set up to have a restaurant. We can't put a hut in our restaurant. So we're limited in our equipment that we could put in. And we opened during COVID. So that was fun and challenging. And it's also really hard for staffing a restaurant. So those are big challenges we have. But we, I think I'm really excited about the restaurant. There's a lot going on. We have a lot of new stuff that we're going to be looking to changing and adding to the restaurant in the near future. One of them being when we open Nights of Terror for October, we'll be opening for at least three nights at the restaurant, which it will be a four-course meal, which is going to be on reservation only, so it's limited. And you come, you get your four-course meal, which is going to be themed for the Halloween season. We'll have black tablecloths, the whole candlelit spooky scenario going on, as well as there will be presentations within the two-hour experience. So you'll be eating and then there'll be spooky, creepy sort of presentations happening within the room as well. So I'm very excited about it. I think the team's really excited about it. We're working on our menus as we speak and should be a lot of fun. So when you say presentations, you mean like a little immersive or like a little actor interaction or experience? Is it something like that? Yeah, exactly. And then does that come with like entry into the haunt or is this is going to be a separate thing? 
you can come to the restaurant for this experience without attending the haunt if you don't want to do the haunt in case that's something that would be too scary. Or if you purchase both, then you'll have access into the haunted house once you're done your dining. At whatever point, there's no certain time if you want to stay, have drinks for an extra hour or two hours. You're more than welcome. And then you will be brought directly into the haunted house. So you don't need to do the line. You're directly leaded in as soon as you're ready to go. That sounds fantastic. And it sounds like a really good idea. I think having a restaurant in an escape room sounds like a good idea in general, especially when the company is as big as yours and you guys have so many games. It helps to keep the customers on location. You're here, you play a couple of rooms, and then if you want to get something to eat in between. We've got the restaurant right there. I loved it. And it was a great area for us to hang out when we were there for the tour. Just to finish off on that, a lot has changed since then. And a lot of the difficulties that we had was that, especially Sasha had her own vision for this and she didn't take enough credit there with what she's done with the place. We didn't have any experience, but she's been doing everything. But she still had a vision and the chef we had, which was a very good chef to have to start off with, didn't share the same vision as Sasha and didn't share the same vision as Escapearium in general because we do want to have somewhat of a merge, I guess, between Escapearium and the restaurant. We don't want them to feel like they're two separate entities but have somewhat of the same feel. So Sasha and her team put a lot of work during the last time we closed COVID, which was after the tour in December to March. And the menu is a lot nicer. The food's a lot better and the presentation especially is a lot better. And we have alcohol. Yeah, that's a big difference. And she made some really cool drinks. Like they're not just rum and Coke. It's like some of our drinks are actually an experience in itself. And having to redo it, I think we would go towards a more immersive, maybe actor-driven restaurant. I don't think we would go the same way at all that we're in now. Right now, we're talking about what we want to do with the future because we feel like there's no identity to that place. It's like there, but it, it doesn't have its own it, its own soul, maybe. It's just a restaurant, and that's not what Escapearium is. So we want to do something unique and bring that feel And we're working on a lot of projects at the same time, and we are funneling all of our projects in the same direction because that's where I think the future is. And we don't want the restaurant to be any different, if that makes any sense. We kind of want to take it to the next level like we do with all of our games. We want to make it better, make it more immersive, make it more lively. And so we're in the talks of how we can do that with the restaurant. Yeah. And then going back to when we were talking about employees, I think it would apply for this as well. I think we would have a lot easier time getting employees and keeping our employees if we had something unique where the experience was directly part of the employees that were working there. One other logistical question that we wanted to explore with you, Quebec is a bilingual province where both French and English are spoken. And my understanding is legally businesses must make everything available in French. How do you approach designing for two languages? That's a good question. I think initially we didn't put much thought into that. We just did it and we just put everything in two languages. So there was more writing and stuff like that. Now we just try to avoid things that are written totally. That's basically what we do for the other. We do have a lot of audio and stuff like that. If it's pre-recorded, we definitely have to do it in two languages. It's not fun to have to do everything twice. (laughs) It's definitely more costly. You need certain people that are able to do things perfectly in English and then perfectly in French. And normally it's not the same person. 
So that's also an issue, but it's definitely something that we have to look at. And it's not really fun to have to do it in multiple languages, but it's definitely something that we have to do. And yeah, everything has to be in French here. If nothing's in English, you're allowed, but everything has to be in French and everything has to be bigger in French. So your letters are supposed to be written bigger in French. And there's a lot of laws like that that apply. And correct me if I'm wrong here, but like when you walk into pretty much anywhere, everyone greets you sort of the same way with bonjour, hello. Is it true that you have to speak French first? They actually said that they want to remove that we're only allowed saying bonjour and we're not allowed saying hello. Interesting. And let me just tell you one other thing. Lately, there's a new law that was introduced that says that you're not allowed speaking English in a workplace if you have more than 25 employees. Really? So in a world where we try to discriminate less and try to avoid discriminating, our government is telling us to discriminate when it comes to workplace. I don't know. That's I found that's incredible in 2022 to hear a government introduce a law like that. We have a lot of employees that speak only English. And I don't know. The law has already been introduced. We're not sure exactly how that's going to work, but there's workarounds, I guess. I don't know. But it's yeah, I just can't believe it. What I told people about that that aren't in our province, their jaws drop. Wow. That is something to think about. <laughs> yep. We'd like to spread the love a little bit. What are some of your current favorite games in Canada that you did not create? Closer to our area, I'm a big fan of Immersia. And a big reason why I'm a big fan of Immersia is because I like things when they're unique. I like when companies take chances. I like companies when they try to do something different. And I find that Immersia does that a lot. We actually, because we did Salutem lately, because why we did it so late is because my daughter and my wife didn't really want to do it because they were a little scared. And I really enjoyed it. I thought the uniqueness of that game was really awesome. And the feeling I had in it was really cool. So I, that's definitely one game that if something coming from afar, I would definitely recommend that game just for its uniqueness. I like their hotel as well. In Quebec, there's quite a bit of good games as well in Quebec City. Marchard de Rive is the name in French. That's probably Dreamwalkers. In Quebec City, that's that was one of my favorite over there. We're actually headed to Quebec City on Sunday to do a lot of the games there that we still have left to do. And of course, the Forest of Falderon, I assume that's what it's called in English, at Sauvekeeper, we really liked. We did it after the tour, a few months after the tour. And I thought that was a really cool game. I loved that experience. It really is. It's such a cool experience. Is it the Enchanted Forest? Is that No, it was Enchanted Forest on the tour, but it has since become the Falderon Forest. It was rebranded after the tour. Codex games I really liked. Two of them were bought. I haven't redone them, so I'm not sure how they are now, but they had really good games. We definitely have a lot of good games in our area, but those are the shout-outs I would give out to. Cool. Sasha, any come to mind for you? We traveled lately to Toronto, and some of the games that we played there, which were really awesome, were at Crypto. Some of the games there were definitely my favorite that I've played in Canada. They have a really nice pirate game, which I thought was a beautiful set. I loved it. It also has a short storyline that goes with it, which was a lot of fun. And yeah, I thought that they did a great job, and I'm looking forward a lot to see what else they're going to be putting out there. I'm a huge fan of crypto, and we're definitely going to have them on the show at some point in the future. We've actually already chatted with them about it. Sasha liked the pirate game better, but I was a big fan of Below Zero. And it was our first game, too, that we played when we got there. So I was really impressed when I should have been really impressed, is all I got to say. (laughs) (laughs) It's a really, really fun experience. And and those guys are awesome. They really do some good stuff. And I I can't wait to see what else they're going to do. And I'm sure it's going to be great because that's all they do is great stuff. Agreed. 
What comes next for you? You've already alluded to a horror game that's coming, the haunt experience and the dining experience. It sounds like there's a lot of things happening, but what's the near-term plans? Well, we also have another game that was developed from our Escapaz team, which is a company that we bought out five years ago or something like that. And uh, our team there is awesome. Really, really good. And let me shout out to Guillaume and Mathieu, the managers over there, are the reasons why we introduced acting to all of our games, because they did it by themselves over there. And it was such a hit that we asked them to come to Montreal, to Laval, and train all of our employees there to act. So because most of them, we don't hire actors, we train our employees. So we give them three, three hour courses. I know it's not a lot, but most of them do have somewhat of a background in improv or something at school, at least. And they came in and they did that. And now they came up with a new concept in a speakeasy bar. I think PG went to. It's called Katia Murph, Fourth Wall. Yes, I went there. I loved it. That was very, very fun. So when I went, it's in a speakeasy bar and you would order a cocktail and you got a little puzzle that came with each cocktail and it's a whole murder mystery. And in order to solve the entire thing, you had to order at least six cocktails, which is very smart of them. But I do recommend that you either come with a big drinker or a group of friends so you can each order a different cocktail. That's actually something we did a while back for them, which was really cool. But now we actually did a totally different experience that's only on Sundays for now. And it's for 50 people. And it's like detective immersive theater. Like a murder mystery. Not really. And that's where we're not sure. It's the first time that we did that. I think people that have done it said it resembles a bit what speak, uh, sorry, speak no more. Is that it? Speak Sleep no more. more. Sleep no more. Not speak no more. Uh, I mean, speak no more is kind of a good name for it because you're not allowed to talk. (laughs) Exactly. That's why I probably said that. But yeah, somebody said it resembled like it. There's no way. Don't come there thinking you're going to have that type of experience. But people said that it touched that and uh, touched that type of experience. And so far, it's a really big hit. And I think that with that team, we're going to go deeper and deeper into that kind of direction. So I think Escapaz is going to go more towards immersive theater and kind of sleep no more type direction. I would say with maybe introducing more interactive puzzle type stuff. We're not sure yet because that experience doesn't have any. And I think Escape Room is going to concentrate more on uh, what we do, escape rooms and stuff like that. But yeah, that's something that we just launched three weeks ago, I think. So it's our third weekend coming up with that. And so it's really a good, uh, it's a big success. So. Oh, congratulations. We'll have links to all of these experiences in the show notes. The only thing that's only in French right now. (laughs) (laughs) Jonathan and Sasha, where can people find you or your company on social media? We're not very good at social media. That's probably our weakest point, though. Just a casual 2,000 comments on your... uh... Yeah, but that wasn't our page. That's somebody else that spoke about us. Oh. Yeah, because we're really not. That's definitely our weakest point. But escapearium.ca, our Instagram is escapearium, and we have a TikTok, and we're doing something pretty cool, though, with that. So I'm not sure how I could let you know about that or what we could let you know. It has to do with the next game. We're doing something interesting with social media with the next game that we're playing with. Very cool. Jonathan, Sasha, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having us. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks a lot. It was really fun. The Reality Escape Pod is produced by Lisa Spira, edited by Steve Ewing of Stand Inside Media. 
and brought to you by RoomEscapeArtist.com, your home for well-researched, rational, and reasonably humorous escape room and immersive gaming content and events. Hi folks, it's that time again, you know the one where we ask you to back us on our Patreon. Now, I know that everyone has Patreon request fatigue. I have it too. And I know that you're used to hearing that it takes a lot of work to make this content and that the money goes a long way. But it really is true. All of the things that we're doing take a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of money. And the support that we get from our Patreon community is invaluable. If you have the money available and love what we're doing, please do consider backing us on Patreon. It means more than I think you realize. Thanks. If you have been enjoying the content on Reality Escape Pod, David and I would really appreciate a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcast or Spotify. It really goes a long way towards helping us market the podcast and growing this podcast. We'd like to take a moment to thank our highest tier sponsors, Derek Tam, Breakout Games, Jonathan Driscoll, Pat Tupin, Rex Miller, Paula Swan, Scott Olson, and Byron Delmonico. Jonathan and I went to Toronto a couple months ago and we decided to try a scary game. So the first room wasn't too bad until the door opened to the next room. And it was like a darkish long hallway, which Jonathan obviously went into. And I stayed back in the first room, just watching him, deciding if I was gonna go along into the next room. So he's down at the end of the long hallway room. I'm still holding on to the wall in the first room and he gets down at the end. And then <laughs> there was apparently a dude and so he's standing down in this hallway and he's like twiddling his fingers, deciding if he's gonna go towards the dude or not. And at that point I was like, nope, I'm not doing this. He played the game. I hugged the wall in the first room and watched him play the game while he got more and more frustrated. <laughs> but you needed to be more than one player playing because there were things going from one room to the next room where you had to like catch items and put them into holes and stuff. So he was running between four rooms saying, are you gonna help? Are you gonna help? And I was like, no, I'm gonna hug the wall. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, that was our scary game experience. <laughs> And yes, we do own a haunted house, but I was not going to visit the dude who never actually showed up again in the game. That's Sasha, the master of fear. 